0: We're doing something fun for episode 69. We're doing our first self-hosted live stream, and we have a whole bunch of people hanging out with us live while we do the show. This is your crazy idea, Alex.
1: I know, right? SSH 69, and we've bumped up the recording date by one day to make it on 420. I mean, we couldn't (laughs) pass up that opportunity, could we? So joining me today, obviously, we have Mr. Fisher. Hello, Chris. Hey there. Also in the room with me is Brent. Hello, hello. And we have Cheese Bacon from Denver. Hello there hello bacon welcome back to the show cheesy thanks man and we have 40 plus crazy
0: people watching us on the live stream hello live stream hello Jitsi room although they're all muted alex so they're all not gonna chime in
1: well that's <laughs> that's a technical hurdle that i need to understand still now if you are watching live and you want to suggest a title we're doing a whole lup style thing you can bang suggest in the irc room today that's
0: right and we'll pick something it's fun we thought i don't know we've never done this before But every now and then it'd be kind of neat. It also, I think it'd be a lot of fun to do a live stream, maybe on like a project day. We work on something and then we do an episode and talk about it. And maybe we do part of the build or the configuration on the live stream. We got ideas. We got all kinds of ideas. I have a drawer full of ideas behind me. I was going to (laughs) say, I've been collecting my ideas in a box that I store in my closet in the RV. So (laughs) we both have uh, like to-do boxes of stuff. Uh, but you literally have a nice slide out drawer. Box or drawer of shame, whatever you want to call it. I just can't get to it. I've been uh, I've been uh, creating new shows. I've launched officehours.hair. It's a new podcast. It's sort of a podcast for the Jupiter Broadcasting community and uh, one where I can kind of talk about uh, things going on with JB, the shows, uh, community events, podcasting in general. So I started a new show. It's but now that I've got that out of the way, I'm planning to get back to some of my projects. But go check it out. Uh, officehours.hair. Now, of course, this is the first
1: episode since our big East Coast meet rally, meetup rally thing that we did a couple of weeks ago. We had about 100 people show up. So great job. And hello to anybody that we said hi to on that day. Yeah. Uh, we so had some, fun. We had some feedback from five who wrote in. Thanks, Alex, for conjuring the meetup. Uh, I had a really great time and I would definitely come out to the East Coast from Minnesota again The barbecue, the brew pub, and the park were all superb. I was curious about what drew you to North Carolina in the first place, but after meeting the friendly people and enjoying the beautiful trails of Raleigh, I get it.
0: Oh, that's nice. Brent, you've been living there for a hot minute. How do you feel about that?
2: Living the East Coast life. Uh, I feel as though it's maybe a month ahead of the season where I'm used to, so this is like a vacation. (laughs) It's super great. And Alex and I have been... Doing projects galore, which has kept me very interested, very busy, and learning a bunch of new stuff.
1: Yesterday, he turned up with a pickup truck bed full of materials. We're going to build a roof under my deck tomorrow to store my lawn tractor and all sorts of stuff.
0: We're uh, we're having a good time. Your lawn tractor. You're so American now. It's adorable. <laughs> you know, when in when Rome, we, darling. When in Rome. We, before we were even like twenty four hours after the meetup, the folks in Raleigh were already talking about holding their own just because there is such a crowd there. There's more tech there than I realized. That's what the meetup really showed me is that there's a lot more tech in Raleigh than I, than I even probably appreciated. And they're really motivated to keep going. That's something I, not to plug the show again, but that's actually one of the reasons I'm launching that new show is to help organize community meetups, because I think people could just start doing these on their own, even if we can't make it. And maybe from time to time we drop by because we had, we had over 100 folks show up at this one, and it was cold. The weather wasn't really cooperating with us, and it was kind of vague where to even find us, right? And we still had over 100 people show up. We actually covered in full detail
1: in LUP full 53. We had a bunch of interviews with, with the folks that uh, we met on the day and stuff like that. Uh, so if you want more information about the meetup and you know our initial reactions because we recorded it the day after the meetup, linuxunplugged.com slash 453.
0: Now, tell me about the open mower thing here, because uh, I'm picturing you building a robot that mows your lawn. I mean, that's pretty much what we're talking about
1: here. I mean, (laughs) so I was looking at uh, I have a push mower and I have like about half an acre to mow. It's not too big, but it's big enough that in the North Carolina heat in the summer that I'm just like, nah, this is this is too much. Like an hour sweating late in the evening. No, thank you. So Mm. I bought the lawn tractor in the end. But what I really wanted to buy was one of these autonomous mowers but they're too expensive for the moment then came along this open mower project which i just think is the coolest thing in the world it uses uh like open source software uh to to do like gps traces of the mower in your yard and uh for those in the Jitsi room chris is playing a, a the video from the github page and essentially this thing is uh it's like it's like the autonomous mower but actually smart the the old ones like the, the kind of I say old, like the current generation ones, just sort of bop around the lawn in a random pattern until they're done. This thing actually uses GPS traces to figure out the most uh, efficient pattern and then
0: zip-zops back across the lawn. Of course, my question is, does it work with Home Assistant? It it really is. It looks like a Roomba for your lawn. Uh, It looks like while training it, he's walking it manually with almost like an RC controller that's wired to it, that's teaching it, the the way he would mow the lawn so it's essentially repeating his lawn mowing technique right it's just memorizing it i mean he's uh basically saying to his lawn mower this is the way <laughs> right this is the way well, this like is.
1: previously other lawn
3: mowers right the automated lawn mowers would have like a wire or something that you would like embed in the ground which would then say hey stop here so to see this open and the fact that it operates on gps is pretty rad
1: yeah this one specifically calls out in the github page no no perimeter wire needed
0: Hmm. i like that you could i mean with the walking technique while that means one time you have to walk this thing around you could also give it really specific routes so if you have like a patch of gravel somewhere you'd want it to avoid or stumps and roots and stuff like that this is a really simple way to just avoid the thing from screwing itself up and then of course I go to like well could I then get metrics what kind of metrics could I get out of this and what could that tell me about the state of my yard <laughs> Well and maybe maybe you
3: could you know learn how more efficiently you could mow your yard if it was mo- operated in different patterns right like the kind of like google gives you the recommendation of the most econo- or eco-friendly path to your destination versus the shortest route and
0: stuff well, you know what actually thinking about, it, I could give you an example, is the things monitoring when it's raining or not, so that way it doesn't run during rain. It would be, I actually, now that I think about it, I'd really like something that specifically told me for my yard, when it rained, how long it rained, when it stopped raining, all of that. So if anybody has a recommendation, something that I could pull into Home Assistant, send a boost into the show or email me, chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com, because that actually I could geek out on.
2: You need a weather station.
0: Right. But which one? Aha. Alex, I'm
2: interested in the hardware that's running this thing. Um, Is it like a do-it-yourself kit or are you taking something off the shelf and reflashing it or something?
1: Well, unfortunately, this project has been shared a bit too much and several of the components in the uh, hardware bill of materials have sold out. I mean, we're all used to that at this time of the uh, pandemic, right? But the trouble is the specific stepper motors that he's using are um out of production or out of stock. They're not even sure if they're still going to make them. Like he bought maybe the end of the batch or something, coincidentally. So unfortunately, he's saying to people, make sure you look up before you invest in this project. You can actually find all the parts because it's not a given. Uh, another thing he said that's really interesting, though, is that it looks like um in terms of the robot mowers that are already on the market, there's a bunch that may uh, share a similar mainboard across rebranded different manufacturers. So he's going to try and target that one and hopefully make that one open, and then you could just buy a clone of this mower and then flash it with his firmware. It's like the
3: Pixel of lawnmowers. It sounds pretty awesome.
0: Hmm. Well, I guess we'll uh, stay tuned, and if anybody tries this, let us know. So this week we had we had one of these stories that was kind of the inspiration for the podcast. And it's just a shameful story. You may have heard of Insteon. Well, it looks like they're gone. And the entire company seems to have just abruptly shut down before the weekend, as we record here. And that broke users' cloud-dependent smart home setups with no warning. There was no official word ahead of the shutdown. No advanced warning to users. And... sort of like salt-in-the-wound style. They have a craptastic status page that's obviously manually updated because when you go to it, it says, all services online. Right, yeah. (laughs) Clearly, that monitoring doesn't do jack. (laughs) I hate that. I hate that so much. Yeah.
1: So Instian is, or more likely was, a smart home company that produced a variety of smart home devices. Uh, They did something along the lines of uh, Z-Wave or ZigBee With their own proprietary protocol, uh, which has thankfully been reverse engineered. So we're not completely up the creek without a paddle, just mostly. Uh, And yeah, like Chris says, they went out of business some point over the weekend and their CEO has scrubbed all mentions of the company from his LinkedIn page. And basically all of the devices belonging to Instion are now paperweights. Uh, With the exception of their wall switches, which are electrically connected as part of the circuit. So that the worst case scenario that happens with those is they're still mechanical switches that will operate the the lights at least. So there is some silver lining. It's a small one, but it's there.
0: This is horrible. Um, And whatever you do, do not factory reset your hub. Apparently, it has to contact their servers as part of its setup. And um, that's going to fail now. Home Assistant have actually
1: uh, updated the documentation since yesterday to say it's now possible. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, So if you do accidentally factory reset it, they now have a workaround.
0: This is really a shame to see. Um, And they also had their own proprietary networking protocol, which actually looks like it was kind of neat. I mean, it's 900 megahertz, which is usually pretty good. It also could coexist with Powerline networking, which is kind of neat. And it supported local control. But it was proprietary and patented and you know unique to them, so that's just sort of gone now. <laughs> see not only are your cloud services gone, but the whole protocol that has been created is essentially now invalid. It's still usable, but nobody's there maintaining supporting shepherding it. Uh, we just see this happen over and over again, and it's these kinds of stories that really got Alex and I thinking we should we should do a show about this, because when you take this kind of stuff over like if you go to cloudfree.shop or you reflash something or you just get it working locally and you get it all working at Home Assistant, you no longer need an account or, you know, a cloud login. There is a, there is a sensation of self-sovereignty that you get. It feels really good to have control over this stuff. Like it feels better than you'd expect. And um, I think it's because we keep seeing these rug pulls, essentially, from these companies. And you buy these things and there's sort of this implicit promise that they're going to keep the service running. But they never actually commit to it. And there's no warning to the average consumer that the discontinuation of the online services invalidates the product, right? They don't understand that. They don't get that. Our audience understands that. But people that are buying these things from like Home Depot or whatever, they don't understand that.
1: I mean, the obvious answer is to just use Home Assistant and never worry about it again. You know, uh, use devices with open firmware like Tasmota, you know, like the ones from Cloudfree.shop. Um there are some other options of course, you know, there's uh HomeKit compatible stuff which is all local only. Um it's not quite as good as like a fully open firmware, but it's it's close. Uh OpenHAB and what's the other one? Domotic. I'm never quite sure how to say that one. Kazunte. <laughs> I mean it's it's just a a shit situation, isn't it?
0: It is. Because I feel like you're kind of giving the typical answer of Oh, you don't like what the carrier flashed your Android device with? Well, you could always put lineage on it. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, our listeners maybe, but probably nobody else in my family, right? It's. I mean, the reality is
1: they have just created a huge amount of e-waste in yeah. one weekend.
3: I was just about to touch on that exactly, 100%.
1: Yeah. I'd like to see some kind of legislation from... Governments from the e u from these bureaucratic bodies to say you have a duty of care on the life cycle of these devices, whether that extends to how people sunset devices and say right we're gonna uh the Sonos uh, that we talked about last year at some point, the v one or bridge or whatever it was uh why didn't they rather than just saying you've got to buy the new one, why didn't they provide a firmware? to say for the v1 devices hey you can put this open firmware and now you can do what you like with it you know make it this open device and give it another life we've been doing that with laptops for two three decades now you know we take old crusty windows laptops and throw linux on there and give them a new lease of life all i'm proposing is we do the same thing with embedded hardware
0: yeah absolutely that's a that's a great idea
3: so, you know, you had kind of mentioned, Chris, about Home Depot and, you know, possibly picking these off the shelf. And and I don't know, you know, where these were sold at retail, right? And then, you know, Alex mentions about the e which I think is a very significant problem. But how many of these devices do you think are still on the shelves and, retail? you know, at, at retailers and consumers are just buying with the intent that they're going to work as soon as they get them home? Maybe this is their first smart device ever, right? As soon as they get them home, now it doesn't work. It doesn't connect to the cloud server. Here I am trying to go through some workarounds. Something I, I'm not technically inclined. How do I get this flashed? How do I get this to work with something else? You know,
1: can it's, you it's, imagine being that teenager that's finally convinced your dad to buy a piece of smart home gear? <laughs> right, he gets it home and this happens.
2: Yeah, exactly. Oh, bad luck. Exactly. You know, it's not an isolated case either. Um, my father's dealing with this right now. He bought a few d-link cameras and water sensors for a few rental properties that he has in his home as well he gets some flooding there just as a security blanket and this is a perfect example of a really great use case for these devices right um luckily he got an email maybe at the beginning of the year in january saying oh d-link we're gonna stop supporting our protocols and all devices will stop working at the end of the year or in september something like that It's, I think what's troublesome and I, I, Chris, I think why you suggested that the whole premise of this show started was that this is not an uncommon situation. We see it, you know, time and time again, multiple times a year with various devices and it's just really saddening. Luckily I looked it up and of course they're compatible with Home Assistant. So I'll be doing some homework there.
1: Now, for those of you that are already Home Assistant users, they just put out a blog post for Insteon users detailing all the little ins and outs of how you can get the most out of those devices moving forward. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now, I've still got Brent staying with me after the meetup, and he is quite the FOSS advocate. I tell myself I'm a FOSS advocate, but this guy lives and breathes it. And so we were watching something on Plex the other night, and there was just an offhand comment about Plex. I can't remember what it was. Uh, And it made me think, well, I should probably try out Jellyfin again. It's been a few months. And so I thought, well, I've got a bunch of watched status in Plex that I'd rather not lose. And so I started investigating how I could sync the watched status between Plex and Jellyfin. And I came across this Plex Tract Sync plugin. So T-R-A-K-T for Tract. And this thing is awesome. Essentially, it scans your media in Plex and adds it to a tracked collection. It will do things like sync the ratings and the watch status as well between different Plex servers that you run this thing against. Uh, There's a config file that you can edit which will let you know which things you can and cannot sync. Uh, You know, you could exclude certain libraries like home movies, for example. It doesn't require a Plex Pass or a tracked VIP membership, though, of course, if you're going to be hitting the tracked API a lot, consider supporting those guys. They do a great job over there. Um, the downside though, is it was, it wasn't difficult to set up, but it wasn't easy either. Um, so I ended up running this thing in a container, just a one-liner Docker run file, uh, Docker run command. And then I set it to run on a cron job every four hours or something like that. Um, I mean, it worked fine. Uh, there was a couple of, um, gotchas with a pin you had to enter between tracked and the command line in the correct order to get things to, to link up correctly. But overall, what is
0: appetized? Well, this is you're you're doing the Lord's work here, Alex, because uh, this is this is powerful stuff here. Because the other thing that this clearly would be useful for is if you have a couple of locations and you have some of the same Plex media content, right? And you watch them in separate spots. Like sometimes Hadi and I will watch something here at the studio, and then I'll go home and watch something, and I have to like manually mark things red like a damn caveman. And this could solve that problem. This is huge for that. And I'll tell you what I
1: felt during this whole process, that the next stage was to was for me to load up Jellyfin. Uh, I still had my config directory, so I just had to redownload the container and, and set it up again, uh, which took all of 30 seconds. Don't you love Docker for that? Uh, yeah. So once I got uh, Jellyfin up and running, the first thing that struck me, it, it remembered my library. It was like a, a time capsule of four months ago when I last tried it. But the first thing that struck me was how quickly... Everything loaded because there was no cloud communication going on. Like I was logged in instantly. My media loaded instantly. It was so refreshing.
0: Yeah. And I'll note, it's real nice if for just some reason you're trying to watch TV and you don't have an internet connection that night. Jellyfin just, you know, it doesn't mind at all. Um, before you go too much farther, can I ask you, you're not having to like modify the Plex container or put this put any software Like a plugin into Plex or Jellyfin, it's just all running as separate containers that are speaking via API or what?
1: Plex speaks via the API, I think, and uh, it runs on your local system and you authenticate against the Plex website with your username and password. It also supports 2FA, which is pretty cool on the Plex side. Uh, But on the Jellyfin side, it's even easier. There's a plugin right there in the store built into Jellyfin You know, three or four clicks, it's all done in the user interface, no wacky container stuff, and it adds itself into the scheduled task section of Jellyfin itself.
0: This is perfect.
1: I do have a question on the initial setup to sync
3: between. How long do you think, since it was local, how long do you think it took to to sync these watch status and the, the stars and stuff like that?
1: It's a good question. The first run of uploading it from my Plex library to Tracked took about 16 minutes. And I've got about 1,000 movies and, I don't know, 150 TV shows or so. About 60 terabytes worth of stuff.
3: That's really reasonable.
1: But Jellyfin, on the other hand, pulling it down was about half that time, about eight minutes or so. So it was a pretty quick process, really. And honestly, once it's running as a scheduled task in the background, as long as it doesn't take three days, I don't care how long it takes.
0: Well, this is uh, absolutely a will do after the show uh thing for me. I love it when you have these ones. That's great. <laughs> I love that. That's I've thought I've thought how am I going to solve this problem because it's not a huge it's not a huge issue, but I also like you have contemplated moving to Jellyfin and I know this seems stupid, but one of the things that brings me back to Plex is we're in the middle of watching a couple of series And or the kids and I are watching like a movie that's like a trilogy or something like that. And we just want our watch status. It's silly, but it's been a real problem. So this sounds like a real way I could sync to track it and then sync track it to Jellyfin and I could just start there. And this also could solve the problem between watching things at home and watching things at the studio. Alex, you're solving problems for me today. (laughs) I'm here to serve. Now, the only thing that still has
1: me pausing about Jellyfin is the Android TV client. It's still not quite as reliable as I want it to be. It's pretty close. It's really getting there. But there's just some nice things now, particularly Plex have added this, uh, what do we call it, Like the Discover feature, where you get some extra little ratings and some extra little things about which servers it's on and qualities and stuff like that that yeah. Plex have done. That I think Jellyfin could probably add as well um, that would... You know, just take the interface just to that next level.
0: The 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 search aspect of that Discover feature where it shows you all of your friend servers is, is actually really nice.
1: Yeah. But yeah. the beauty is, you know, you could switch between Plex and Jellyfin
0: at your heart's content now and everything will stay in sync. That's a good point. You could also just get rid of Android TV and use a good TV platform like Apple TV and run Infuse, <laughs> which works great with Jellyfin. Oh,
1: you. Now, I also wanted to have a look and see uh, if I was going to drop Plex completely. Um, it needs to do a couple of things for me. I use Prolog on iOS to do audiobooks, and I actually shared this with your good lady while she was here, Chris. Uh, so she, I can see she's been listening to a lot of my audiobooks since then.
0: And that's one of my favorite things of the trip, Alex, is we exchanged audiobooks once again. She exchanged some of her audiobooks, and uh, she's like... She, she, I think, is probably in heaven right now, because she's kind of been on a bit of a dry streak with audiobooks. And I'll be honest, I have not been super happy with how I was doing my audiobooks. Prologue helps a lot, though. That, that's that been nice, but it's really only best on the phone.
1: The downside to that is there isn't really a good solution to audiobooks and Plex on Android. And so with Brent staying with us, you know, we've been talking about books and stuff and we thought, well, there's got to be a better way. My wife has been using BookSonic for many, many years, which is a Java-based application based on top of the old Subsonic base. It's fine, I guess. I mean, it, it it's pretty reliable until it breaks because it's a Java app. You know, there's some memory leak somewhere or something just doesn't quite work and it crashes. So I actually have a job to restart BookSonic every day because it's not the most reliable application. So I saw on Reddit the other day, there was an application called Audio Bookshelf had been released. And this is a self-hosted audiobook server for managing and playing your audiobooks. Still early days. The first commit, the first release actually, sorry, was uh, only in September 2021. So it's not even a year old yet. Uh, And I don't know if you remember the old iOS, like iBooks application that was like skeuomorphic with like the wooden bookshelves and all that.
0: This is what this thing looks like. Yeah, the best version, you mean? Yeah, I remember that. I loved it. Were you and Scott Forstall good buddies back then? Yeah. <laughs> nice callback, dude. Yes, I like the skeuomorphism. Why not? You got that high resolution screen. Let's make it look good. Yeah, it's got the wood shelves. It's got nice, big, bold book covers. This is great. Well, it it looks great, and I think it's
1: got a lot of potential, but it's sadly not quite ready for prime time yet. Uh, so I tried out the iOS app, which I had to install that test flight thing because it's not properly in the app store yet. It's like, like the application is is in beta. And let me tell you, it's most definitely in probably alpha stage right now. Uh, I had two versions across the last two days where I was testing it. The first version didn't load any of the audiobooks from my library at all. So even though I had a few hundred books in the library, it just said library empty. OK, that's a bit That's a bit of a problem. Luckily, there was an update available. So I I pulled down that update and installed it from the test flight app. Um, And then I tried to do, it it found the books this time, but I tried to test the syncing of playback positions between the browser on my laptop and my phone in my hand. And it worked-ish. So if I started playing the, the book on my phone and skipped to a certain chapter, the browser would update in real time as to where I was, and it would save that status. If I closed the browser and come back, it would remember it. If I close the iOS app, it would just start at the beginning every time. So there's obviously some work to do. It's not it's not quite there yet, but it's extremely promising.
0: Hmm, okay. Yeah, I'd like something that I could use reliably on the desktop and on mobile because sometimes I want to sit down and I want to listen on my desktop speakers. Um, and I need something that's really really usable by the wife, and she likes Prologue quite a bit. I also set it up for my son Dylan, and uh, I used Plex Collections, to create just a collection of books for Dylan. And then, um, you know, when he signs on on Prologue, he just sees, he goes to the collections tab and he just sees all the books that I've already picked for him.
1: And so over lunch, we were talking with Brent about how to get him access to my book Sonic because it's behind my firewall. Typically, I just give my wife my uh, wire guard access. I love Brent, but I don't want to give him full access to my LAN. You know, I can't trust his phone that's literally about to catch fire. (laughs) You know the one I'm talking about. It's literally the batteries popping out the thing.
0: I can't believe you're letting him bring that in the house. You have a family now. you got to get that out of there.
1: <laughs> and so I was looking at TailScale, and they actually offer a way to share a specific server as an exit node with someone else with a TailScale account. So what I'm thinking of doing is sharing just my uh, media server with Brent as an exit node, and then he should be able to access BookSonic that way. Now I want to take a moment to say thank you to our site reliability engineer subscribers. You make this show possible over at selfhosted.show/sre. Now, as many of you know, and you love to write in and tell us we're wrong, we'll get to the feedback shortly. But you can write in at selfhosted.show/contact, uh, and also this week, uh, and also we have a Discord server over at selfhosted.show/discord. Loads of great conversations, but this week there was one that really took the sandwich. <laughs> this week okay. we found out the origin of the pseudo logo. This thing is so cool. Have you seen it?
0: No, I waited. I saved it right now for this. Um the Have you seen the
1: XKCD comic of sudo make yes. me a sandwich? Make okay. me a sandwich. Well, the logo for sudo is a sandwich.
3: That's great. I love it.
0: Is it, though?
1: <laughs> no, it is. It's great.
3: It is great. It is.
0: <laughs> well, I think
1: it's great because if you look in the corner of the actual logo, it says "influenced by XKCD149.
0: That's pretty impressive. That is pretty great. Real world Isn't... change being affected right there. Right there. That's that's fantastic. Um. All right. We I know we have a couple of quick tips we wanted to bust out. Is this a thing we do now? We do quick tips on the show? Uh, It is this
1: week because uh, I've been using the crap out of Docker Stats, which is... It's like a top for your containers. So if you mm. if you SSH into a box right now and just type Docker stats, you'll get a, like a live printout of the CPU, memory, disk IO, network IO usage of each container one by one broken out. And it's, it's legit pretty cool.
0: That is. Oh, you know, I think I've seen this tool before, but I think I completely forgot about it. So thank you. All right. I think it's time to get into feedback, don't you? Yeah, we got a boost coming in from Remaking Eden one week ago, 2000 sats. This is hello from Manchester, England. Yay, that's where I met my wife. Hey, as a listener since episode one, I wanted to tell you that self-hosted has changed my entire home and helped shape my IT career. So thanks so much. That's I awesome. have three Wise style cameras. I think they're actually rebranded Yaume cameras. Um, oh, okay. Interesting. I didn't know Wise resold them. He says in the UK the most popular seller seems to be Neos. I immediately um, reflashed mine with the Defang hacks firmware. I use the RTSP feed straight in Home Assistant and Frigate, and they've been flawless for years. I was wondering if you looked at this as an option. Seems like they're not yet working on a V3 camera though. I didn't even know these were essentially rebranded Wise cameras. That's fascinating. Remaking Eden. Thank you, Alex. Go buy some. Brent if you still got that credit card you should go pick a couple up.
2: I think I know where he keeps it.
0: I know where
1: you sleep at night. Is that <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: creepy. Yeah.
1: And so I actually tried this Defang hacks firmware on my original Wise V2. So it was probably 2 or 3 years ago now. And honestly, it was a pain in the ass uh trying to get it flashed on there with the SD cards. I had a real time getting it on there. But thankfully, they released the official RTSP firmware some time ago now. So for me, the use case for the Defang hack firmware has kind of been diminished somewhat.
0: Yeah, and also with WiseBridge, um, it's even kind of simpler now to just use the default firmware, get all the security updates, and still capture the video locally. So that's kind of the route that I think I've been suggesting people go. Anonymous boosted in. He says, and I I meant to get the name. I apologize for a thousand sats. I found you guys through the Fountain app, which is uh, Fountain.fm, a new podcast app, because you have the podcasting 2.0 tag set up. So I want to take a second and just break this down because you may be seeing this if you're in our community more and more. So podcasting 2.0 is a set of new specifications for podcasts to give them more features like chapter images, well chapters to begin with, uh, transcriptions, links that are At a particular time code, uh, all kinds of other features, including a value for value tag, which includes the boost that you hear us talk about. And you can grab one of these new podcast apps that supports these new standards at newpodcastapps.com. And we'll have a link in the show notes that takes you to the ones that specifically support the boost. But, Alex, I know we also just got a whole bunch of traditional emails this week,
1: too. We did. And I'm going to make use of having Brent sat next to me and read the long one. You just
2: want to hear my voice, don't you? I do, baby. We all do. We all do. It reads. Hey, Chris, and ironically named Badger. I was listening to your segment about what to do with syncing certificates to multiple servers using something like S3, and I have some comments. Please, for the love of God, don't do this. Firstly, because the certificates are the keys to your kingdom. A leak of those removes all security on your services and lets anyone in the middle snoop on whatever it is you're doing. Self-hosted or otherwise, certificates are massively important and shouldn't be stored anywhere other than where they're absolutely needed. Secondly, because it's just not necessary. If you're not using wildcard certificates, then just creating certificates for each domain is totally fine, and they can be stored and managed wherever the domain needs to be served from. If you are using wildcards, there's nothing which says only one can exist in the world. My servers each have their own wildcard automatically managed and renewed by Trafique. This way, there's neither a need to store their certificates anywhere other than the servers, nor to set up some secure storage or communication method. I don't even bother backing out my certificates anymore. That seems crazy to me. Let's Encrypt, or more specifically, Acme makes provisioning certs insanely simple. Let them deal with the security side of things. We can just use their tools to create all the certificates we want, wherever we want. Thanks for reading, and keep up the great work. Your friendly neighbor, Orange.
1: Thanks for writing in, Jake. Now, this is Jake of episode 42 fame, who came in on our first community spotlight. Uh, Also, we had Kevin write in, who told us that we're actually trying to overcomplicate the management of SSL certificate management. Uh, He says, I get the desire to use a wildcard cert, but it would be much easier to generate machine-specific certificates on each VM instead. I manage a few dozen servers and use Dehydrated to generate Let's Encrypt certificates on each host. That way the private key and the certificate don't need to be distributed and they never leave the VM. It uses a plain text file to configure the host names and generate certificates. And it makes it very easy to add extra names that way. Thanks for writing in, Kevin. You raise a very good point. And uh, yeah, I don't know why we missed that. It's a really obvious thing. Just run, Just run Acme or Certbot
0: on each machine problem solved well i do and this is of course easy for me to say now but i remember specifically on the pre-show that we were not streaming <laughs> we, we thought this guy isn't doing this right and we did start talking about this but then we did we just dropped it and we got to the business of actually recording the show <laughs> we have this thing don't we
1: where we're always having a pre-show conversation and all the best versions uh-huh. of our problem solving comes out then and we're like save it for the show and i guess we just yeah. forgot to save that nugget
0: yeah, it it is absolutely our bad. So um, thankfully, we have an awesome audience who helps us with that kind of stuff. And we have no qualms at all about making corrections and fixing that sort of stuff because it's all about just getting the best info out there.
1: Now, I was hoping to solicit some feedback from the audience on my next networking upgrade. Uh, I've currently got a gigabit network everywhere, which, like most people, I did because it's cheap. You know, I can buy a five-port switch for 15 bucks at Best Buy. Uh, and every time I've looked at going... More than gigabit, so you know, 10 gigs probably the next logical step. Uh, I'd look at the switch prices and they're like two three hundred dollars per switch, and I think, oh, I'll just wait for the prices to come down a little bit, and they never seem to. And Jeff Geerling, you know, who was also on the show previously, uh, just did a video on a Microtix switch, the CRS3091G8S plus IN. That name rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Flipping heck.
0: Yeah, nice. Smooth.
1: (laughs) So basically questions for the audience. If you've done 10 gig, I'm really curious to know how you did it. Did you run fiber in your house? Did you do it with Cat 6A? Thankfully, I ran Cat 6A on the trunks in my house when I moved in three years ago. Uh, Or am I shooting for the stars with 10 gig? Is 2.5 enough for my needs right now?
0: That's a fair question. I'm curious. What you're doing right now that makes even gigabit insufficient, well, I've got gigabit wan, so sometimes if I'm
1: pulling something down from the internet and then trying to stream something to uh plex uh you know like a high bit rate movie or moving some files around from my desktop to my nas for example
0: uh that can sometimes cause issues, sure, yeah, especially when you're 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 you know not working with like Cisco switches there at the, at your house. Right. So that also makes a difference. That makes, I mean, I'm, I'm never going to stop a guy from going as much performance as possible. I'm all about it. Uh, I, I think that's a great question is two and a half gigabit enough. And is it worth the leap to 10 gigabit? I have to tell you, Alex, I feel like you're the kind of guy that appreciates the value of doing it once and do, just doing it right. You know, like you could do 2.5 gigabits And you could probably get away with it for a couple of years, probably even five years. But there's going to be a point where you're going to wish it was faster because you're just that kind of guy. And so, and you know it could be better, too. That's the other thing.
1: You are totally spot on. Now, Lucas writes in in the uh, live chat, I impulse signed up for two gig Google Fiber and realized almost nothing I have can distribute it across the LAN. (laughs) Oh, no.
0: (laughs) Who thought we'd have WAN connections that were faster than gigabit, huh? Yeah, I mean, I would love to have that problem. I'm still stuck with 300 megabits here at the studio. That's what I'm with you, Chris. Yeah, (laughs) there. I'm not even joking. There are days when the Starlink in the RV performs better than the Comcast here at the studio. Yikes! I know. Although, although we did get a letter saying that fiber was in the area and would be available soon, so things could be looking up, boys. Things could be looking up.
1: Oh, Brent will attest to this. We're driving around my area at the moment, and there are just trucks rolling, running fiber everywhere around me, but not in my neighborhood. <laughs> that does sting. It's very, it's very frustrating, and it's
2: they're also hard to miss. They're giant rolls of orange beauty. So, Alex, every time we're out driving, he's like, "There's another one, fiber."
3: Yeah, yeah. I will say that I agree with Chris here on that, though. That you might as well go ahead and do ten gigabit and you know we were on the topic of e-waste earlier right what is it going to be like 2.5 for five years until then you upgrade to 10 just seems like save yourself the time and the effort do it once and do it right
1: i agree completely and that was why i ran cat 6a when i moved in was because i had one eye on that in the future Uh, but i was talking to abstract vector who is uh, matt adventurous way who was also on the show a few episodes ago building the house He's running fiber in a conduit from the road to his house, which is like a three, four hundred foot driveway or something. Uh, But then he's also running fiber between all the buildings he's building on his land. Uh, So he's looking at all the different switching gear he's going to need for that kind of stuff. So
0: you would, too. Right. I mean, wouldn't you at this point? I mean, absolutely. I would love to do that. Yeah. We should have him on at some point and see how it goes, how it's all working. Yeah, we need a 6 monthly
1: update from Matt on his house build. <laughs> but he was doing—he was doing ten gigabit over two and a half
3: for his home build. We will have to ask him. Oh, okay.
0: I bet if he's running fiber and conduit, I yeah, you might as well. Right. <laughs> you know what? I want to find out. We'll talk to him. Maybe he can let us know. In fact, let us know what you think. Two and a half should he go all the way to ten gig? How would you do it? How have you done it? Go to selfhosted.show/contact. That's the place to go to get in touch with us. Give us some feedback or send us a boost. Get a new podcast app. Your boost go to the front of the line. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. And I'm over there at Chris LAS. Cheesy, you got anywhere you want to send people? It's been a while since you've been on. Anything to plug?
3: Uh, no, nothing really to plug per se, but, uh, I'm glad to see that you guys are still healthy. The show's still doing great. Sorry. I missed the meetup this time. Hopefully I'll get to come out next time when we're not in the home buying process, which is just a nightmare in and of itself right now. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: that's a whole podcast (laughs) when you do get a place and it's time to tech it out you got to come back on the show. We'll talk about that. Oh, absolutely. Oh,
1: yeah. Absolutely. We'll, we'll drop in and we'll helicopter in and do some Ethernet pulls with you or something. Well, yeah. You, <laughs> you know, now that I'm here at the
3: apartment, like, I brought all of my Unify gear with me, though I can't really – it's like just sitting in the closet right now. Like, I can't right. really use it You for must anything.
0: be already daydreaming. You must oh, be thinking about it.
3: absolutely. Every house we look at, dude, I'm like, <laughs> hmm, where could we go here? Oh, I like this crawl space. Plenty of place for me to get around here. Um, right. But yeah, you know it's it's great to see that you guys are still uh, chugging along, doing great, and the the the, the turnout you know a hundred people that's that's pretty phenomenal, um, and that people are already talking about meeting up there individually. That's I think that's just a a great thing for the community as a whole, um, and you guys kind of kickstarting that's pretty pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, if you want to learn any more about me, if you want to get in contact with me, if you want to slide into my DMs, uh, you can get me on uh, the Twitters at Cheese Bacon at C H C B A C O N.
0: Very nice. And of course, Brent, you're our frequent friend these days. uh, And Frequent flyer. One place they can, of course, find you is on the Linux Unplugged program. Anywhere else you want to send people?
2: Yeah, I think you guys are all doing the Twitter thing, so people can find me there. I'm at Brent Jerva, and I think you should look for the link. Don't need to spell it.
0: Oh, there you go. Also, he lurks from time to time on our matrix. We do have a self-hosted community on our matrix server. Our matrix server is colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. But you can also follow the show on the Twitters if that's your thing. I understand. It's at self-hosted show. Big thank you from me to everybody that came to the meetup.
1: It's the first real public meetup that I've I've been to. I, mean, I know we went to Denver, but this one was kind of initiated as self-hosted yep. show. There's yep. your crew there. I know. It's like my, my bros all came to say hi. it so <laughs>
0: was great.
1: Huge thanks from me personally to everybody that made it. Uh, I had a blast. So thank you for coming. Also, thank you for listening, everybody. And those of you that joined us live, hi, welcome. We might do this more often because we had a pretty good turnout today. And this was self hosted.show dot show slash 69 420 edition.
3: So what did, you, uh, what did you barbecue there, Alex?
1: Oh. oh there was, this was a whole process. Oh, I mean,
3: you know I had to ask. I mean, I it starts saw in some pics, but.
1: I got some pork ribs, some nice. really nice meaty pork baby back ribs. Always solid. Fired up the smoker. Uh, it's a ceramic egg, so right. it cooks a little differently to a stick burner. Right, right, right. It's it's all about the indirect radiant heat from the dome. Right. So I did I did this double indirect method where I have the charcoal in the fire basket. Okay. I have the the chunk of wood in the ashtray underneath, so okay. it's getting all the heat, and it just slowly burns. Slowly the, smokes. The smoke coming from the wood goes through the fire, so its velocity is much faster. Mm. Uh, than it would be otherwise then it hits the first heat deflector and then i have uh, a pizza stone as the second heat deflector on top of that and then i have the grill on which the the ribs are on and so i'm setting this thing to be about 300 which is a little high for low and slow <laughs> yeah
3: a little, little but, bit but yeah.
1: uh the stall because of the double indirect method lasted for about an hour and a half oh yeah i didn't even think about that but yeah that makes sense. And the stall on ribs—I mean, you, you don't typically get, you know, if you wrap them or whatever, you right. don't typically get a stall on ribs. But I told these guys dinner was going to be at like four thirty, and then I was like, "Well, actually, it might be 5.30. Well, actually, it, it might, might be, be six thirty. Th- <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so worth it though. Oh, I think we ate a couple of hours late in the end. But uh, I put a nice, uh, a nice redneck barbecue lab. There's a, a shop near me that does really delicious sweet tangy barbecue sauce and rubs nice and uh so i used that on there with a little bit of rub mm. so good
2: Love and it yet go. alex couldn't stop there he didn't make just ribs that's ready right. to go to the next level
1: i had to show off and try and make fresh made pizzas at the same time Ooh, as well how was my that pizza oven how'd that turn out they were fabulous
2: yeah they were super fabulous was it did
1: you do those in the green egg no, I didn't do that in the egg. Uh, I've actually got a propane pizza oven with like a little stone Oh, in it. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one of those kind of like little dome-shaped mm-hmm. pizza oven things. It's rad. Like you can have weeknight pizza. It takes like two minutes to cook because the stone's at 7.50. What do you use for your dough? Do you just make your own dough or how do you? I make it myself. Okay, yeah. cool. He does. Uh,
3: he imports. Does, does, it come out, does it come out crispy on the bottom? Do yes. it crispy on the bottom? Because a lot yeah. of like homemade pizzas, that's where it fails, right? It's like...
1: Maybe mm-hmm. you overload it with too many ingredients or something, but it's like,
3: you know, Usually, it's a floppy piece
1: of pizza. homemade pizza fails because the stone isn't hot enough. So no. the top cooks before the bottom mm-hmm. does. And if you get the stone at 7, 750, something like that, just like 425 Celsius, it's pretty damn hot. Uh, it takes like 20 minutes with the propane t- to do that. Wow. But you can actually hear when you put the pizza on the stone, you can actually hear the water in the dough like cracking as you do it. And it's really fun. It's really fun, and you know, within like Delicious. ninety seconds, Hadia timed me. That. time me, and I think it was a minute eight for one of the pizzas to cook from raw to
0: cooked in a minute eight seconds.
3: And that's just like like a like a eight ten inch kind of personal size pizza.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you got to sit there and just watch it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure.